Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy, and we're going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles to follow along with our reading this morning, you'll find the passage on page 992, page 992 of the Pew Bibles, 1 Timothy 3. Now, this section has some qualifications for overseers, qualifications for deacons, and then Paul talks about the gospel itself. So we're going to read 1 Timothy 3, the whole of the chapter, verses 1 to 16. And it's page 992 of the Pew Bibles. And as we read, we remember this is God's word to us. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into, this, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we're going to think about this chapter for a few moments together this morning. And you'll find 1 Timothy 3 on page 992 of our Pew Bibles, page uh, 992. Uh, I love the church. Uh, you would expect me to say that as a minister but the church has taken a bit of a battering over the past few years. There have been times when the church, in the broadest sense, has hit the headlines. There have been times when the church has been in the news, and not for positive reasons. You know the stories, I know the stories. And when bad stories hit the headlines, the church takes a battering. People criticize it. People write things about it. People are burned by it. They leave church never to return again. And as well as that, the church has taken a battering through a change in the tone of culture. Uh, we've been thinking about this at our evening services as we've looked at Daniel. 
But Christians, and by extension the church, are no longer considered to be the good guys. In fact, we are increasingly being looked upon as the bad guys. It's becoming harder to live as a Christian. It's becoming harder and harder to be involved in a church. The church has also been battered and bruised by COVID. Some churches have struggled to get going again. They've struggled to get people to return to in-person services. They've struggled to get people involved in areas of service. For the most part, and there are some exceptions, churches have shrunk over COVID rather than grown. It would be easy to think about all those things and come to the conclusion that the future of the church is not that bright. That actually, broadly speaking, the church is in a very difficult position, a position from which it will not recover. It would be easy to be disheartened and discouraged, but we should take confidence from what the Bible teaches about the church. That is, that it's Jesus' beloved bride, that the church's future is secure, that there will always be a church on earth, no matter how bad things get. And we should also take confidence from how Paul describes the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And New Testament letters have hearts or key verses, and verses 14 to 16 of 1 Timothy 3 are exactly that. Paul's point in writing this letter is that we would know how to live as the church. In this section, Paul is calling the church to proper conduct and confession. But before we look at those two things, we need to pause for a moment on Paul's description of the church nestled at the heart of this letter. He uses three graphic and descriptive phrases, the household of God, the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is God's household. That is a way of describing the church as a family. We talk about the church family here in Bukna, and that is actually a very biblical way of talking. The church is a family with God as the father, believers as his children, and therefore brothers and sisters, along with elders and deacons as leaders, to help the, fa the family carry out the father's purpose. The church is also the church of the living God. In the Old Testament, God is called the living God to emphasize the deadness of idols. In the New Testament, God is described in the same way 15 times. The Bible tells us that we are the temple of the living God, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. When we're scattered throughout the week, it's difficult to remember that. But when we come together as the church, as the assembly of the living God, there is great spiritual encouragement for us. In worship, we bow down before the living God. You can read the Bible at home and you can listen to hymns at home. But when you sing together in church and when you listen to the word with other believers, it's far better. M Martin Luther once said, at home in my house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Th that's why it's important to come to church. We are the church of the living God and he is in the midst of us when we meet together. TV church, online church just doesn't cut it. People in whom the living God dwells need the real thing. The household of God, the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillar and buttress are, are graphic architectural pictures. A buttress or foundation is essential to the building. Pillars stand upright on the foundation and give the building its structure and beauty. And what Paul is saying is, as a buttress, the church provides the solid bedrock of truth, and as a pillar, 
it upholds the truth. These three graphic, descriptive phrases make a compelling picture, an encouraging picture. All is not lost. The state of the church is is not as bad as you think. As the church, we are a family. We are the church of the living God. And we are a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul loved the church. And we should love the church too. There's no wriggle room in the Bible given to Christians who say they're Christians but who don't attend and are involved in the church. Being part of and playing an active role in a church is an integral part of discipleship. Having given us a a beautiful description of what the church is, Paul goes on to talk about two things. How the church is to conduct itself and what the church is to believe. We're going to use two headings to think about those two things. We're going to think about household conduct and household confession. First of all, household conduct. The the verse in which we read the beautiful description of the church is the key verse in understanding what 1 Timothy is all about. There is a way to behave in the church. Uh, there, there, There is a way to behave as a Christian. So look at what Paul says. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Conduct in the church was a big concern for Paul. Chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy are a call to exemplary conduct. In 2, 1 to 8, Paul talks about holy behavior and gospel-focused prayer. In 2, 9 and 10, he talks about dressing modestly. In 2, 11 to 15, he mentions biblical church order. And in 3, 1 to 13, there are two sections dedicated to leaders within the church. Now, we're not going to go into the specifics of what Paul says in 3, 1 to 13, but let me point a few things out. In verses 1 to 7, Paul focuses on overseers, elders in the church. And there are 14 things that he lists elders should be marked by. When we hear people talk about leadership, even in church circles, we're told about good things that leaders do. But the 14 things Paul mentions can be summarized in this way. He is describing what leaders are like rather than what they are to do. Verses 1 to 7 are all about what it means to have mature Christian character. Verses 8 to 13 cover the role of deacons within the church. PCI doesn't have deacons, although other denominations do. The closest thing we have in PCI to deacons are members of committee. And again, what we have listed in verses 8 to 13 doesn't so much focus on what deacons do, but on their character. Paul is concerned with household conduct. He wants Christians, whether elders, committee members, or just ordinary believers, to live in a way that honors God. He's given some motivation for exemplary household conduct in 2, 3, and 4. He says, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, what's the motivation? Well, it's an evangelistic motivation. When the people of God live out what they are in Jesus Christ, God is pleased to enhance the preaching of the truth of the gospel. In other words, God works through us as we live lives that honor him. Paul is calling Christians to live as Christians. There should be no difference in how a Christian behaves on a Sunday and how they behave during the week. Household conduct means living and behaving in a way that aligns with what you believe. There's no point in saying, I believe this, 
but then living in a way that undermines that belief. Uh, the news this week has been dominated by Partygate and the story that the Prime Minister made COVID rules and then subsequently broke them. A civil servant called Sue Gray was called to investigate the breaches of COVID rules in Downing Street, uh, and she published a report this week. Uh, the report itself was fairly dull, and Gray didn't offer any of her own verdicts, but she did say this. She said there was no excuse for some of the behaviour set out in the report. And then she added this. She said, many will be dismayed that behaviour of this kind took place at the scale at the heart of government. The public have a right to expect the very highest standards of behaviour in such places and clearly what happened fell well short of this. What is true of government is even more true of church. There have been times when the church in the broadest sense has hit the headlines. There have been times when the church has been in the news and not for positive reasons. You know the stories, I know the stories. The Bible calls us to high standards of behavior, and often we fall short. First Timothy three, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is concerned about household conduct. One of the biggest barriers in people becoming Christians and even coming to church is the behavior and lifestyle of Christians. D.L. Moody once said, out of a hundred men, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. Out of 100 men, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. What, what has your household conduct been like recently? Have you been living in a way that contradicts your beliefs? Well, what, what have people been reading from your life? Oh yeah, they go to church, but you should see them in work. No one should be allowed to speak to other people in the way that they do. He says he's a Christian, she says she's a Christian, but if, that, if that's how a Christian behaves, then I don't want to be one. What has your household conduct been like recently? Has it put people off or has it made people ask questions? Has it put up a barrier or has it opened a door? Is it what God calls for or is it what God says is wrong? Household conduct, how you live matters as a Christian. Household confession, that's our second point. What you believe as a Christian matters as well. Household conduct, household confession. Specifically, what you believe about Jesus is really important. Some people are connected to church and they have a very loose sense of who God is and what it is they believe. For Paul, the Christian faith is built on Jesus Christ. And having said that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, he moves on to what we are to believe about Christ. In verse 16, you'll see that he quotes from a creedal hymn about Jesus. Uh, this was presumably a hymn that was well known within the early Christian church. But look at how it starts. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Whenever Paul uses the word mystery, he uses it in reference to Christ as the revelation of God's salvation plan. By saying that the mystery of godliness is great, he's really just reminding us that the person and work of Christ is the key to godly conduct. Jesus makes godly household conduct possible. Without Jesus, we cannot live in a way that honors or pleases God. Look at what the hymn tells us about Jesus, though. It says he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
The six lines of the hymn fall into three pairs. The first couplet describes how Jesus was revealed. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. His divine and human natures are referred to here. He is the God-man who has come down. The second couplet speaks of the witnesses of Christ. He was seen by angels proclaimed among the nations. One of the witnesses is supernatural, the angels. The other is natural, people among the nations. The point is that the whole realm of intelligent creation saw him. And the third couplet says that Jesus was believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This refers to the reception of Christ. Heaven and earth did more than just see and hear him. They joined, joined in giving him recognition and acclaim. People on earth believed in him and he was taken up in glory. And that's a reference to Jesus' ascension. If the angels sang in wonder at the birth of Christ when he came down to earth, how they must have sung when he returned to heaven. All the angels were there to meet him. The angels who, who raised their flaming swords at the gates of Eden. The angel of the apocalypse who, who stood with one foot on the sea and the other on the land. The, the archangels, Michael and Gabriel. But here's the point of the hymn. The, the magnificent Christ of this household confession makes possible the godly household conduct that Paul so earnestly desires. The, the call to, 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 to godly conduct isn't a challenge to pursue a self-generated bootstrap godliness. If you bootstrap something, you, you are getting yourself out of or into a situation by using existing resources. The gospel is not like that. It's not that we, that we do good things and God accepts us. It's that God accepts us on the basis of what Jesus has done. And in that light, we live in a way that pleases him. 1 Timothy 3 is a call to live out the gospel in our daily lives. The, the Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the burning essence of godliness. It's, it's radiating nuclear core. In his coming death and resurrection, the, the mystery of godliness was displayed before the universe. And through his saving grace, all those who believe in him have been united to him, so they share in his godliness. His godly record becomes our godly record. And in the thankful response of those who have been rescued, we can begin to live out personally the godliness Jesus lived out. Because of him, we can, as chapter 2, verse 2 says, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That may seem very boring and very ordinary. We live in a world that, that, that loves things that are radical, epic, transformative, awesome, innovative, and life-changing. Ordinary has become one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants to have an ordinary child who goes to an ordinary school? Who wants to be an ordinary person who lives in an ordinary part of the world, is a member of an ordinary church, who has ordinary friends and an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy, make a difference. And all of this should be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained. We have to live up to our Facebook and Instagram profiles. Or so we think. This is another political illustration, but it's a helpful one. The, 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 the Times recently critiqued the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer. And in their critique, they said, voters may be turning away from the Tories, but they are not convinced by Starmer who they see as decent but dull. Do you know the people in life and ministry that I most admire are decent but dull. 
according to the world's standards anyway. But they live a hidden life, a hidden life that is not dull. The ordinary, dull Christian life is anything but. And dullness won't keep you out of the kingdom of God, just as decency won't get you into it. 1 Timothy 3 reorientates us to see what truly matters. If we have trusted and believed in Jesus, then how we're living for him is what truly counts. Are we living in a way that honors him? Are we living in a way that helps the gospel? What is our household conduct like? Does our household conduct match our household confession? How we live is important and it's directly connected to what we believe about Jesus. As we think about these things, we should see the encouragement there is to go in this direction. Look at what Paul says at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What he's saying is that if you want to be a mature, godly person, then that is a very good thing. It's not something that will happen overnight, though. It's not something that will happen in the same way that you flick a switch and suddenly a light comes on. It comes through a long obedience in the same direction. And it comes through committing yourself to the thing that God has instituted and given for that very purpose. What, what is it that God has provided for, for us to, to grow in our faith? Well, it's the church. As the church, we are a family. We are the church of the living God. And we are the pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul loved the church. And we should love the church too. This week I came across a beautiful old hymn that was written by Timothy Dwight, the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, the, the great American preacher and writer. The, the hymn is called, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. And this is the third verse. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. The Apostle Paul could easily have written those words and there's a sense in which they could be our words too did you know that the progress of church is the most significant thing that's happening at the moment all of history is moving towards the moment when God will be with his church forever that that means that what we do together on Sundays what we do together at midweek on Wednesday and what we do in other parts of church life really matters it means that we can work on our household conduct together and as well as that, we can praise God together through our household confession. There is a challenge, though. And the challenge comes to you in that you can't behave in a way that pleases God without, first of all, making the confession that we've thought about this morning. In other words, you can't reach God by the things you do. Instead, you have to turn to Christ, and in turn, he will help you to live for him. And that should make you think about where you stand before the Lord. We've talked about this before, but as we study what the Bible says about the church, there's a sense in which you can be part of the church, but not part of it. You can be here on Sunday morning, but not trust the Lord. This passage calls you to turn to the Lord in faith. In a way, if you're not a Christian, it's something of a mirror for you. As you look at 1 Timothy 3, You'll see what God calls people to, and you'll find that actually you can't meet that standard. Not by yourself. No one can. The gospel tells us that we have failed on every level, 
But it also tells us that when we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, we can have the hope of heaven in our hearts. We can experience the forgiveness he freely offers and we can live in a way that honors him. So what will you do as you hear this message this morning? You can work on your household conduct as much as you like, but simply working on it just won't do. You need to humbly admit that whatever you do won't be good enough. You need to humbly make the household confession and say that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Also that I might know him and trust him and follow him. Will you do that today? How will you respond to Christ this morning? Let's pray together. Father, we realize that there have been times when the church has hit the headlines and we know the stories. We've heard them all before. And we realize that as we come to you this morning, we have much to confess when it comes to our household conduct. We confess that we haven't lived in a way that has pleased you, having said that we trust you. And so we pray for grace to follow you and to honor you with our lives. Help us to walk the walk and talk the talk. And we also pray for those who haven't yet trusted you. We pray that they would make that household confession, that they would come to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, and that in turn, they would also live in a way that honors and pleases you. Father, we realize that your word is a challenge to us at times. We pray that we would apply what we've thought about this morning to our hearts and lives this week and that you would give us grace to live these things out. For we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' precious and saving name. Amen.